You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. jump right into the Word of God this morning. So grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 2. For the past few months, what we've been doing is we've been setting apart each Sunday to look into the book of Acts, specifically the last month, into the rhythms, practices, and spiritual disciplines that made up the life and the gatherings of the early church, specifically the first church uh, here in Acts chapter 2. And we're doing this primarily because as a church, right, we want to the best of our ability, we want to do church like right, like the way God designed it and intended it and uh, wanted it to be. Because, right, the primary uh, core belief that we hold to is that the church isn't ours. It's Christ's, right? It's the Lord's. We are his, and reality, Honolulu, is Christ. It's not mine. It's not ours. It's God's church, right? And Christ spoke about this in Matthew 16 at a place called Caesarea Philippi. He was with his disciples and he said that he was going to be the one that would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail, right? And even the New Testament writers go on to describe the church as the bride of Christ. And even Peter would remind us in 1 Peter 5 that Jesus is the chief shepherd, right? In other words, he's the senior pastor and he's the senior leader of the church, capital C, and our church, local expression, reality, Honolulu. It's Jesus' church, and so it would only be right to look and hear from him and his word uh, what the church is to be like, and that's what we're attempting to do uh, as a people, as a pastor, as leaders, is to come under the leading and the care of Christ when it comes to, not our church, his church, right? And the primary way that we can learn of what God desires for his people and his body and his church to meet and what they should do when they meet is the God-breathed, God-inspired, living and active Word of God, the very scripture that we have in our laps today. That Word is our instructions, those are our guidelines, those are our principles, that sees God's heart uh, for us and for His church. And what's amazing, even even more than that, to dig in a little bit more, is that we actually have examples of spirit-led and spirit-filled men and women that by no means were perfect, like you and I, attempting to do this, to be the church. And we have them as models or examples to look at. And we actually get like a window or a glimpse into what they did. That's why the book of Acts is such a gift. Like in this season, it's such a treasure that we have because we see the church firsthand gathering, and we see details of how they did it and what they did. And specifically at the end of Acts 2, we get a little crash course into what the early church's rhythms and practices and spiritual disciplines were. And so thus far, we've seen that the church is to be a community that learns, a community that 
uh, gathers, a community that shares, a community that remembers. And today we're going to be looking at a community that worships. And we're calling this five-part series, The Blueprints of the Church. It's because, and we're calling it that, because these things can be used as blueprints, so to speak, as a framework and a foundation for how we are to do things. And so let's uh, read Acts 2, 42 through 47 to remind us of what God's Word says. And then uh, we're going to look how they worshiped specifically today. So read along with me. Um, It's Acts 2, 42 through 47, and I'm reading out of the NIV. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily who were being saved. Okay, so little picture into the life of the church. And there was a lot going on. There was a lot they did together. But something that they could not forget, that could not be forgotten, was praise and prayer. See, when it says that they were praying and praising God, we see that a few times there in our text, uh, verse 42 and verse 47. What that most likely would have been at that time was actually that these Jewish messianic believers, traditionally or ethnically, right, religiously Jewish, but now they had come to faith in Jesus being the Messiah, messianic Jews. Uh, The Messiah, right, remember being um, the promised savior of not only the Jews, but the Gentiles and the whole world. And so in following with Jewish tradition that they were used to, these Messianic Jews, they would have been reading and praying and actually singing the book of Psalms, right? The book of Psalms we have, they did in their living rooms, in their homes, just like you and I this morning have. In Jerusalem, 2,000 years ago, they're reading the same text that we are. Like, trip out. Like, that's crazy. And they, as they were singing and praying through the Psalms, what they were doing was they were using them as a guide. See, the Psalms uh, are mostly poetic literature. They're songs. They're meant to be sung and prayed to God. Uh, for instance, you may have heard of the Song of Ascent. So the Songs of Ascent uh, are a compilation of 15 psalms, right? Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. These are the Songs of Ascent. And when you were making your pilgrimage to Jerusalem for one of the annual festivals and feasts that you would travel to Jerusalem for, uh, you and your family or the group that you were traveling with, you would actually sing these psalms, Psalm 120, 121. Um, they would sing these songs of ascent. And the reason why they were uh, 
called ascent is because, you know, Jerusalem is at a higher sea level. Many, many were traveling. And so the roads up to Jerusalem, as you were leading up to the city of Jerusalem, where you'd meet with your God, you were reading these old ancient texts, the book of Psalms that we have, and you were singing praises to God to tune your heart and to look forward to the ability to meet with God. Really cool. So what's happening in the book of Acts is they weren't neglecting this. That wasn't, um, isn't some kind of maybe new practice or new way of doing things. Maybe there was a different emphasis or a greater understanding of the God in which they were worshiping, but they by no means neglected this at all. Uh, Actually, it says they devoted themselves to prayer and to praise. Did you catch that? What did they do? They devoted themselves to these things, by no means neglecting, if anything, grabbed hold and tightened the gra- the, the, their, their grasp on praise and on prayer. And for more reasons than I can count, praise was a rich, big part of what they did when they gathered. And I think what's important to note is what their worship was like, like what it consisted of. And that's important because I think the early church's way of worshiping not only gives us a good metric, um, but also it gives us a good heart check. It allows us to ask the question and be reminded of, well, why is it that we worship and how is it that we worship? And if you, you see from our text, the early church's worship was both joyful, but also reverent, joyful and reverent. Because, you know, there was no doubt of their joy. Even in Greek, that word in Acts 2.46 there literally means an exuberant expression of joy. Like, as they were praising God, it was filled with exuberant expressions of joy. In the original language, that's what was happening there. And the reason why they were worshiping with joy is that God has sent his son into the world. And now he had sent his spirit into their own hearts. Like, how could they not be joyful, right? And if you guys know anything about Christianity, Christianity is meant to be a joyful religion. And every gathering, every service is supposed to be a celebration. What we're doing here today is supposed to be a celebration of the joy that we have and who God is and what he's done for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, I heard uh, of this archbishop named Jeffrey Fisher that said right before he died, the longer I live, the more convinced I am that Christianity is one long shout of joy. I love that. Um, And we see that here in Acts. Like we see that when they gathered and they worshiped God, it wasn't some mundane funeral type-esque super somber thing. It was filled with joy. But also, at the same time, the early uh, church's worship was never irreverent. Like, it wasn't just joy without reverence. It was, it was equal. It had both. Right? Luke writes here in verse 43 of our text that everyone was filled with awe. They were joyful, but they were struck with awe at who God was. Right, The living and holy God had just visited Jerusalem, 
God was in their midst and they bowed down before him in that mixture of wonder and humility, which we call worship, right? And the early church's worship was, was both joyful and reverent. And we need to be challenged to always kind of hold that biblical balance as we worship. Um, but again, what we see here in Acts is part of a larger narrative. It's not a one-off. It's, it's a part of a larger narrative. And throughout Scripture, before they were doing this, if you remember, um, there was others in Scripture that were also worshiping God. And if you joined at 10 o'clock and you heard our call to worship, you would remember me praying and, 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 excuse me, reading the triumphal entry of Jesus, Palm Sunday text that we're celebrating today. And it says specifically there that the crowds cried out, Hosanna to the son of David. Speaking of Jesus, speaking of the Messiah, Hosanna, son of David. But also, if you've been with us in our study of Acts, when the church was filled with the Holy Spirit at the beginning of Acts, Peter got up and he gave this incredibly powerful sermon to the crowds gathered. And his main emphasis to this Jewish crowd was bringing evidence to the fact that prophecy fulfilled was said that the Messiah would only come through the line of who? King David. And for any Jew that would even remotely think of entertaining the idea of Jesus being the Messiah, the, the promised Savior of the world, that person had to come through the line of David, right? And this is King David. We all know King David, David and Goliath. This is King David. If you were in, in the upper room in Jerusalem at this time, um, in the old city of Jerusalem, this is walking distance to the actual city of David. If you were to go there today to the city of David, right outside of the old city of Jerusalem, you can even go to the ruins of David's palace, right? Not only was David Israel's king, he was revered. He was a man after God's own heart, but he was a worship leader. He was a worship leader. And just like we're looking back to the early church's model of how they worshiped, for these Jewish messianic believers, who for them do you think they were looking to as an example of how to worship God? I bet it was David. I bet it was David. And you know what? I'm reminded specifically of King David uh, leading worship that is described in 1 Chronicles 16. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn there, 1 Chronicles 16. I'm going to uh, read a section of it for you. I'm going to read verses 23 through 36. But I want to give a little bit of context here. Because remember, these believers 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, what examples they had, it was their Old Testament patriarch, patriarchs and forefathers. One that was absolutely revered for them was King David, uh, the worship leader. And so for context sake, right, Chronicles, the first and second book of Chronicles is what it is, is a narrative of the whole of 
the Old Testament scriptures, right? Traditionally, Jews would actually place First and Second Chronicles at the end of the Old Testament. And if you read First and Second Chronicles, uh, much of it would be content that you'll find in Samuel and Kings, but some is new and, and wonderfully important. And just leading up to 1 Chronicles 16, what happens is, is David becomes king a few chapters after, uh, before, uh, after Saul dies. He assembles an army and um, some mighty men. He makes Jerusalem Israel's capital. He builds a palace. He has kids. But what he decides to do is he decides to get the Ark of the Covenant and bring it into the city of David in Jerusalem. And remember, the Ark of the Covenant represented the person and the power and the presence of God. And he places it in a tent with preparations soon to build the temple to house the Ark. But this is why it's significant. David, before anything really goes on, before they do anything, he brings God's presence right into the center of Jewish life and right into focus for all to see. He brings the Ark of the Covenant into the center of their life and focus. And what he does is he appoints worship leaders and musicians. And for the first time in over 400 years after Moses had, uh, and final, finally they were in the promised land with their God. And what did they do when all of this finally happened? Like finally they're in the promised land and they're settled. What did they do? They worship their God. And so in 1 Chronicles 16, these are David's instructions to his people, to his musicians, to his leaders, to the people of God of how they ought to worship. Again, if you have a Bible with me, uh, 1 Chronicles 16, verses 23 through 36. Allow these instructions to give you some insight of how God's people ought to worship. This is David speaking. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens." Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his dwelling place. Ascribe to the Lord, all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that's due to his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let the trees of the forest sing. Let them sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Cry out, save us, God our Savior. Gather us and deliver us from the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting, from everlasting. 
there's a few things I want to point out to give us some direction how our worship might be. Right, number one, David's instructions here is that God had to be exalted. They weren't to be exalted. It wasn't King David that was going to be on the throne. It was God that was on the throne. He's the center of the attention. He is the focus. Secondly, God is to be worshipped for who he is. Like his everlasting, unchanging character and nature. Right, His faithfulness, His love, His mercy, and His power. That's why God's supposed to be worshipped. But it doesn't stop there. God is also supposed to be worshipped for His deeds um, amongst them and for them. Like for Israel here, much of Israel, as they're worshipping, they're recalling the history of God's work in their midst. They're recalling who God is and what God has done for them, and it causes them to worship. What's also important in 1 Chronicles 16 is David makes a point to make sure that their worship was supposed to be from their hearts and not lip service or a mere show, but it was supposed to come from a real uh, heartfelt sense that they were thankful of who their God was. And lastly... They did it loud and proud. They gathered musicians with every instrument and they played these sweet melodies to the Lord. And again, we have playlists and we're going to have a little worship here today. But I so am looking forward to once again in our cafeteria at Aliolani when we can just be loud and proud and unashamedly praise our God. But like the early church and for King David, we have to see here that worship was one of the primary acts of the people of God when they gathered. It was essential that they ascribe the glory to God for who he was and what he did for them. But guys, here's the salient point. If I'm being long-winded and you've lost my attention, look at the screen. Turn up the volume. Here's where I want to bring it home. and This, what, this is what makes it really uh, relevant for us. As we look at worship in the Bible, worship doesn't cease because of circumstances, right? Situations didn't stop praise. It was actually out of the very trials and failures and tragedies of King's, King David's life. It was his own sin. It was betrayal. It was uh, danger. It was hardship. It was loss. It was pain. It was David's hardships. It was the hardships of his life that worship was birthed, right? The Psalms primarily written by David came out of this. The very Psalms the early church was praising God about and that we have in our own hands came out of not the good times. They were mostly the bad times. Worship wasn't stopped because of circumstance and situations didn't stop praise. If anything, it was life's hardships that worship came out of. It was actually birthed out of hardship. And what we'll see here in the book of Acts as our time goes on in the rest of the book is that these believers, these same believers that gathered in these homes in Jerusalem, much like we are now. These believers encountered some of the harshest and most brutal persecution ever heard of. You name it. They were arrested, they were jailed, they were tortured, 
and we see the first martyrs in the book of Acts. But what we will see is that persecution didn't stop them from praising. It actually fueled it. Persecution fueled praise to come from the church. And it caused them from a real deep sense to cling to their God and praise him for how good he was despite circumstances. Guys, if you know the book of Acts, we're going to see in Acts chapter 16 for Paul and Silas. Um, how, how did Paul and Silas respond when they were imprisoned? Right, when they were arrested for living and preaching the risen Christ. How did they respond to arrest? They worshiped all night long for the whole jail to hear. Right, and then they were miraculously freed and let go. But their response to a really bad, scary, uncertain circumstance was praise. Church, we've got to grab a hold of this, right? Because what worship is, is ascribing glory to God for who he is and what he's done. Guys, take it from everyone else in scripture. Our circumstances don't dictate our praise. If anything, praise should actually come from the pain Right, worship should actually come out of worry. Like in, in the darkest times for the church is when the greatest of the worship songs we have are written. It's where the book of Psalms comes from. God wants to do a new work with new songs, with new songs of, and shouts of joy in our midst, in the midst of this really strange, uncertain, fearful, weird season. God wants us God, God wants to, uh, to allow these circumstances to actually fuel praise in our midst. And church, it seems like in this season that we should actually be praising God more deeply and more often than we ever have before. And again, it may look different, but that doesn't change the heart behind it that our hearts and the attitudes of our lives should be ones of praise and adoration and worship to our God. And before we go into uh, a time of, of worship now and of praise and, uh, and of uh, ascribing glory to our God, I want to pause to remember the greatest act of love our God has ever demonstrated for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. One of my favorite quotes is uh, from A.W. Tozer, and he asked this question. He says, why did Jesus come? And he asks, answers the question rhetorically. In order that he might make worshipers out of rebels. Because guys, once we were far off, we were rebellious to God, doing our own thing, but we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. We were brought near to be in God's presence so that we could give our God praise. And so as we enter worship, what I want to do is I want to invite you to take communion with me. And so if you have um, bread or cracker or juice and wine, could you get that in front of you right now and um, get that ready to take? And guys, we've been doing this every week because Jesus himself said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. He did this at the Passover meal. 
And he said to his disciples, and what Jesus says to us is, you take the bread and you remember this is my body that was broken for you upon the cross. And as you take uh, this juice or this wine, as you drink it, remember it was my blood that was spilt for you um, on your behalf. And so church, let's take this now and just take a moment in the midst of our living rooms, in front of our screens right now, together and take communion and remember what Christ did for us upon the cross. Jesus' words cannot express how thankful we are for the cross. God, I really believe that eternity is not long enough to praise you for what you've given to us in the person of your Son. And God, we want to be a people that worship you, that ascribe you glory because, God, you're worthy. You're the only one worthy. And God, as we enter into this time of worship as a way of response for who you are and what you've done, we pray that we would be a people in spirit and in truth, that we would worship you now. God, we want you to be praised and glorified and magnified and exalted in our homes, with our families, with our roommates right now, across Oahu and Hawaii, across the rest of the United States and even the world, whoever may see this, whoever's gathered, we pray that you would get the glory. You are King, your King Jesus. We thank you. We worship you now. We love you, God.